Welcome to the Conversatorios. Conversatorios are curated conversations from the Rutas and Caminos Festival Archives. The idea behind the Conversatorios is to have an exchange of ideas where art and human rights intersect, with speakers who are well-versed on the subjects. These conversations were recorded live in front of a festival audience, and they're just as relevant today as they were then. This first conversatorio is from Rutas 2018, and it's titled, Do We Need a North American Storytelling Agreement? This was a candid conversation about how stories move across territories, what they mean to us, and how we share them. What would a North American storytelling agreement look like? How do we think about ownership of voice? Who tells whose story? How can we best treat one another's stories with care? Aluna invited Keith Barker, Denise Bolduc, Phelan Johnson, and Alex Williams to have a conversation about this. We'll let them tell you more about who they are. You might also recognize one voice as Trevor Schwellness, who moderated the panel. Let's start the conversation. How can we bring our voices to this idea that um, we are, we are we're not a land of borders, but something older and different and beyond that, and that people have you know, we need to talk to each other across distances, and, and what does that mean for storytelling? Um, uh, what are the protocols around that? Are there, do we need to reinvent them? Um, so uh, a lot of questions opened up in that, in that set of thinkings we were doing back then. And uh, we came up with a saucy title, Do We Need a NASTA, North American Storytelling Agreement? And I think it's, uh, it, I throw that, I think it's silly now, because <laughs> they don't even call it that anymore. But I would, I would like to use that as a kind of a provocation to bounce off of things. Uh, my name's Phelan Johnson. Uh, I am Mohawk and Tuscarora from Six Nations, so about an hour and a half away from here. Uh, I am a playwright. I am a writer, and I am a podcaster with that lady up there. Hi, Leah. Hi, <laughs> um, um, We work on a podcast together called The Secret Life of Canada, which was just picked up by CBC this year for our second Ooh. season. Yeah. So nice. we're, we're in the midst of working on that. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I'm, this land in Toronto is traditionally a part of my people's territory. Um, this was part of our hunting grounds, and so the Six Nations uh, during the Revolutionary War, some of our people sided with the U.S., some of them sided with the Crown, and uh, my people sided with the Crown, and that's how we ended up on the Canadian side of the border. Um, but we still have some folks stateside, um, and I just got to go there a couple of months ago for the first time and see the Mohawk Valley and the Mohawk River. So that was really cool to be on my land going back, a place I'd never been before. Um, but yeah, I think Toronto, Toronto is an interesting place for me to reside in now because it is a place that I have to remind myself that I am from uh, all the time. Because I forget. Because it's loud. And there's lots of people here now. And, and it can be easy to forget where I am. So my name is Alex Williams. I'm uh, of Lebanese, Irish, Welsh, um, and recently found out a little bit of Jewish background that sort of hid their identity. Um, I was raised mostly in Treaty 6 territory uh, in Saskatoon, but I was born not far from here in Post Lynch uh, Township in a small little uh, one 
like uh, farmhouse, uh, and my mother is here. And and to give you a sense of how badass my mom is, uh, she had me uh, unassisted, uh, an unassisted birth intentionally, uh, uh, just to say that's we know how to do it. We're women. We can do that. Um, and <laughs> growing up in uh, Saskatchewan, that's very. Um, very evident, evident everywhere, but it was very evident to me the kind of social um, segregation that was uh, occurring when I was growing up. But I, you know, was a kid. I didn't really understand it. I didn't know why it was there, and I didn't know where it came from. But it was very clear that, in some ways, that I was growing up in a racist society, and that was clear because I was raised in this diverse community of people, so that I could see a schism between my internal life at home and the external life of Saskatoon and Saskatchewan. Plus, we also lived in a particular community uh, neighborhood, which was kind of where the nice white folks don't like to go. Uh, and that's partly because it was poor. Uh, it was a place where immigrants uh, lived and where Aboriginal and Indigenous people lived. So that was. Um, and it was also a place where I was later to learn a connection to the film I made, which was called The Past System, which was that. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, which was a labor of love and an um, act of resistance in some ways to the way stories were being told, but also um, to expose a colonial crime that had been. Uh, that had a direct impact on that community. And uh, one of the very direct impacts was that when John A. MacDonald instituted this form of segregation, which required people to carry a pass in order to leave reserve, he said um, it was in the highest degree desirable to adopt it. And that also, uh, should people fail to produce permits, they should be compelled to leave the precincts of towns and villages. And in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in Saskatoon and most likely prior, uh, but my theory is that it kind of comes up after the past system as a direct uh, result of the past system going down. People were taken to the edge of town and their coat and shoes were taken. And so you can see what um, one of the people who is um, almost like family to us, Tyrone Tatusas, who's now gone, said, these are long-distance bullets into the future, and they literally are, in a in a very very literal way. So when Johnny McDonald says that, we can see the impact across the decades and across the centuries. So looking at those things and exposing um, what has been done in settlers' names to take secure uh, the land and to promote white supremacy is I, where I feel uh, there, is a, uh, there is possibly, if it's done very respectfully, a role for um, settlers to understand how this forms their biographical identity, how this forms their understanding of who they are, where they come from. And so my biography includes that history and includes the privileges that come from that history. Uh, Annie, bonjour, quick way. Uh, 
Sensei. My name is Keith Barker. I'm Algonquin Métis. Um, it's complicated. <laughs> um, I'm working with a genealogist right now. I don't ever want to identify something that I'm not. But uh, my ancestors come from Mattawa in the Golden Lake Reserve area. As we start to unravel this, as I've just found out that Mattawa was actually a place where, where people went to hide. Where people, there was safety. I, I didn't know this. The genealogist was just telling me that uh, it was a place where people went for safety. And it's also very contentious because there's a bunch of different people from all different uh, communities came to these places to be able to find shelter. Um, and so we're working with it. Um, uh, Louis Riel is in my bloodline, which is a really beautiful, uh, uh, crazy, weird thing. And, and uh, my whole family, my grandfather used to call him Uncle Louis uh, to my mother. And he said, you know, when the Mayflower came over, we were there to greet them. Like, he would say things like this, but my mom would never, you know, and, and I can remember, I, so, uh, but I grew up, I did not grow up in that area. I grew up in many different territories within Northwestern Ontario. Uh, one of them is Kenora, which is a highly racist, uh, very contentious small town in Northwestern Ontario. Um, but my mom always held the belief that we were, you know, Métis. We went to Sudbury for a massive organization when they were trying to gain rights. I can remember being there. I also remember being beaten up by all the native kids because I was the white kid in the group. I, but, you know, but that was, my mom was, because my mom spent all day at these, this conference where they were all talking about it, and we were all just playing in the fields and eating bannock and, you know, having a good time and getting beaten up. That's part of my job is to welcome anyone with open arms that has a story, that anyone that identifies, anyone's interested in their heritage and I, I feels lost or like there's so many stories of people coming to native earth at a time when it was like, I don't know who I am. One of them being Nicole Joy Fraser, who is a, a beautiful indigenous woman who just like came into our doors one day and was like, hi, I'm indigenous. I don't know who I am. Like, I don't know my story. I don't know anything. And she just like, and we was like, come on in. And we started working with her and, and she found her story and she, grounded herself, so it's great. So that, that to me is part of the thing about stories, mm -hmm. is about also honoring everyone's story in this and not just, not just one story that's just, so we deal with, you know, we're on a national level, but also international level as we work. So it's about like also embracing that and other stories and seeing connectivity between each other. So mm -hmm. it's an honor to be here, but I'm here to learn also and just to listen, so. My name is Denise Bolton. My, um, I identify as the Anishinaabe Kwe. Um, I'm a status card holding Indian, um, but my father is uh, French Canadian. And um, I'm originally from Sault Ste. Marie, which is Bawating in Anishinaabe. And it is by Kichigami, which is Lake Superior, which means big body of water. It's one of the most beautiful lakes and all of you should go there sometime because it's stunning. Pancake it's like Bay. an ocean. Mm. Yes, Pancake Bay, Lake Superior State Park or, and Canadian side mm -hmm. by Walleye. It's in between Sault Ste. Marie and Walleye. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the Canadian Shield. Um, so I feel very honored to be from that land. 
and that land itself has so many stories. And um, I guess the story of how I was born and came to be is my, um, my mother is from uh, Garden River, which is called Gidigon Zibi, which is just before Sault Ste. Marie. And my father left Quebec, Quebec. <laughs> and um, he was driving through. And that area, um, there's lots of French-speaking indigenous people. And my father's car broke down in Garden River mm. on the reserve. Well, I'm sure my mother and her sisters were like, ooh, look at that <laughs> cute French guy. And my mother um, helped my father get his car fixed. And um, I'm the youngest of six kids. <laughs> And my parents um, were together for over 50 years. My father um, passed away seven, six and a half, seven years ago. And my mom is 87 years old, and she lives in the house my father built. My father, or my mother's side of the family, um, my grandpa, he was from a very kind of large family and I'm trying to find out more about his grandpa because I'm really interested. His name is Jean-Baptiste, mm -hmm. but he also has an indigenous name, which um, I found online, things you can find on Google, <laughs> and it's connected to um, Wiquimacon. So it's really kind of interesting how so my, my indigenous family is Surat, and Surats are pretty solid in that part of the territory of North, Northern Ontario. And um, I, uh, my grandfather was the close to one of the youngest of his family, so he actually hit, his father told him to go hide. And he didn't go to residential school, but all of his siblings did. I don't know how he managed not to go. But the interesting thing about my grandfather, he was also a carpenter and um, an independent. He built his house on the reserve. He and my grandma, and my grandma spoke um, Anishinaabe Moan. And my grandma um, had a great big, huge garden. She was uh, a midwife. And, uh, you know, which is a power, I think is a very powerful role for women to be able to be there when babies are born and to support that. I think it's, it's actually absolutely beautiful. So, congratulations. <laughs> I feel really privileged because both my parents, I think they went through a lot. Like literally there was a road, a bush, and Rankin Reserve, which is right where my parents built their house. So my mother lost her status when she married my father at that time. And which to me is also very similar to the past system. In, in, in a different way, but in a similar way where the government came in and said, 
oh, you can be Indian, you're not Indian. You can be Indian, you can, you can be Indian if you do this, right? And I find that so highly offensive that my mother lost basically her identity. Her identity became my father, you know? And, and, and then sometimes I think about all of that history about how men, um, white men and, and, you know, the idea of squaw and follow, you know, the man and, uh, you know, and I, I, not that my parents' relationship was anything like that. My mother is feisty. Believe me, she's like a tough cookie. And I just, it's, it's an interesting history in that sense. Like, my mother gained her status back. That's how I'm a card carrying. I'm an official Bill C-31 which was a bill that was passed to say that, yeah, you're Indian now. And, you know, like that, that's a weird history to me. And it was women who pushed that, women from the East Coast who pushed that through and fought that system. And to regain, you know, their rights and privileges as indigenous women, whereas a man, you know, like a woman, a white family, the Connie Bears, lived beside my parents' house. And, and they were, I don't even know what background, they were white. And she, one of the women, the children of that family, married an indigenous man. And he ha she had status and more power than my mother. In, in a, not that you have a lot of power on a reserve, but, and being an indigenous person, but in that sense, you know, like that's just crazy shit making, you know? No wonder people, oh, I swear one, sorry. I told you. I, I, you're too far away to care. Yeah. <laughs> Me. Um, you know, so I, I just, that, the, all of that is, constantly in my brain and processing and thinking and it goes to what you were saying about history and getting to know who your your family is and genetics and because genetics are a big thing right now and who's identifying and how quickly they're identifying and are they real and identification and what's your story and some people don't have stories in those connections, but how do we keep the conversation going? Because it also is convoluting those who have stories. Mm. And I, I, you know, and I'm really struggling with that as well. So, and I'm a producer, creative producer. I've been an artistic director for a couple of companies over the years, but mostly in music. I worked in government, all that boring stuff, and I have way too many projects on the go. And obviously I work alone because I've had this mic way too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Denise. <laughs> that, that's what really makes this an interesting um, group of people to talk a little bit about maybe um, fitting the story to the people in the place. Um, because when the story goes out, Part of you is thinking about who's going to listen. Part of you is thinking about who's going to say these words. And um, is, is this the right place for that story? 
and so on. And maybe, maybe with that thought in mind, I'll pass it over My. to you. Yeah, which you maybe start with, like, how do you curate your podcast? Or pick the story you're going to tell. Well, uh, yeah, they're kind of related, yeah. though. I think, like, the majority of our ideas were already in our brains before we got to the point where we knew what a season would look like because of playwriting, um, because of theater, because you end up researching something or looking into something which leads to something else which leads to something else and then you have this stack of ideas and nowhere to put them and so in a way this was a really nice way for us to get some of those things into the world at what feels like breakneck speed now because we're used to working in theater which takes 10 million years um try film <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right alex <laughs> it's just like things just go right and it's uh i think it's a bit at first it was a bit jarring to experience that mm. that the speed with which things go out into the world um. yeah things like the babe link it was the first episode for the second season and that was very deliberately chosen just like banff was chosen for episode one of season one because Banff is this big iconic Canadian place that is internationally known. Tourists go there, it's beautiful and mountains and it's quintessentially Canadian. It's what people think of when they think of Canada and so we wanted to disrupt that, that idea mm -hmm. and say okay yes it's all of these beautiful things but like let's look at what's underneath that. And the bay blanket, I mean for me I've always known that there's something wrong there. Um, but I couldn't exactly track back to when I knew that as an indigenous person. I'm like, when did I know that the Bay Blanket was, what that history was? Um, but it was also another quintessentially Canadian symbol um, that we could take down. <laughs> um, or reframe, uh, you know, look at it from a different perspective. And because a lot of people had no idea um, when we were doing our streeters, which are the little opening section of the podcast where we just uncomfortably walk up to strangers in public and ask them, what do you know about the bay? And then we ask, they answer us. It was all like, I think of the perfume counter. I think of old ladies. I think of the old lunch bars with so like, like macaroni salad with cucumbers in it or something. Like, those are the things that people think about. But for me, who's never purchased anything at the bay <laughs> ever uh yeah and that's just like this ingrained thing and i don't know when that happened i don't know when i when the protest began i think it started before i was even here because i don't remember rebelling against it it's just it was never a thought to go and buy anything there so i think you know it's fun to blow up those things um yeah, I think it's just, we look at, it's looking at a place that's as popular as like Niagara Falls. And then all the complexities that come along with a border town. And so it's not too hard to find the stuff, right? It's just like, well, what's this about? And then once you scratch at it, it can go in a million directions. And then, and then to distill it into what specific direction we want to go with that story. That gets to be harder, especially for me, because I get really, this is interesting, and this is interesting, and this is interesting, and trying to make sure that I don't get lost in research, because I do get lost in research, because I like to research, because there's just so much stuff. 
and I find especially right now, like online resources and the things that you can mm -hmm. find just yeah. by using Elder Google, like <laughs> Elder Google knows everything. You just type it in and you can find all of these things that we never used to, you know, we did not have access to and it's, that's, so don't find there's a shortage of story. That's for sure. I think, yeah, I think we'll, I don't think we'll ever run out. We'll probably run out of energy before we run out of story. <laughs> I, re I really connect to the, the research as well. And, and I mean, we live in very exciting times in which indigenous stories and, and stories told by indigenous creators are, are being, have, have a bigger platform than they had before. I, I find that super exciting to, uh, to witness and, and see everybody creating, creating work for um, in, in terms of what story was, um, what, I, what story I wanted to disrupt uh, was this larger, I, I think contradiction is fundamental to drama, uh, to film, to story, to everything else. It's, um, you know, good people do bad things, bad people do good things, and that's part of humanity. And I think Canadians largely rob themselves of their humanity by investing in a disnified version of their own history. In so far as they said there, there's kind of this marketing, uh, which has been successful internationally, uh, to give the impression of Canadian virtue. And virtue, power needs virtue in order to survive in order to thrive and in order to colonize, uh, you know, in order to give the, the impression that what it's doing is in the public good. And I can't tell you how many documents I came across in, in archives that would talk about, oh, this is, you know, uh, one of the, my favorite <laughs> ones is that they have to use kind of tortured language in order to justify a cruelty, an obvious cruelty. Uh, so, you know, Hader Reed, who's one of the, the people who institutes the past system, justifies the, it by, you know, the, the contact with whites would uh, ensure that petty depredations might be checked. You know, like, what does even that fucking mean? Uh, you know, for starters. Swear to. Swear to. I, I, that was intentional. <laughs> um, but, you know, how, how the colonial administration ties itself into uh, rhetorical knots that are actually in the sentences themselves. Like, if you read them, they're a house of cards, just like colonialism is a house of cards. So for me, uh, when I sat down with Tara Began, who uh, left the project because she, got, uh, she was building this place, and was uh, too busy to continue. We talked about contradictions and we were looking at a professor and a story and I said, why don't I look at this question about South Africa and Canada and, and the relations and, and whatnot. So I began uh, looking at that and then I was in there was a re relationship to the past system, uh, which you know, to this day I'm not uh, certain there's a direct link, to be honest. I've done a lot of research on that, but there may still be a direct link. But very intentionally, it wasn't in the film because of this. Uh, the story I thought was enough uh, to disrupt this this idea of 
of Canadian virtue. And that if we could unsettle that, or if, you know, and many people have been saying things for a long time to unsettle that, I just wanted to say, hey, here's some more evidence of this. Here's some more, uh, and this goes directly against uh, what you perceive uh, Canada good to be. Um, so for me, that felt like an important story that I, I you know, if I thought of the, if, if people could hear how the elders in the communities and how the community members uh, experience this and if they could relate to it. If they didn't relate to it, the film wasn't for them. Um, but if they could see the injustice and relate to the experience, that would be unsettling uh, to a Canadian idea of who they were and what had formed them. So for me, that, that question of story and who it's for, uh, like for me, it's, I wanted a, a G rating <laughs> for it. So sorry for disrupting that on this film. <laughs> um, but because I wanted it to be accessible to, to kids and, you know, uh, kids that are five, six, seven, all the way up. And then also acknowledging that um, when, you, when you believe in a falsehood, you technically are, you're, you're still, you're in that naive sense of what a child is. You know, they don't know stuff, but they might feel something's wrong. But if they knew this, maybe that would help. And I'm not certain it will because of the Supreme Court decision. And I sent Beverly McLaughlin a copy of the film and she sent me a thank you letter, uh, you know, for the film. So I don't know whether, I actually didn't see whether she voted against the recent decision, but you know, those kinds of things. Information actually won't save us. It's some deep unsettling inside someone uh, that says, this is wrong, we need to do something. Uh, we are disconnected from other people. We need to find ways to connect. So I'm, I'm not sure if the film ultimately will but if it can disrupt people emotionally, I think that's the purpose of film, art, literature, everything else. And get it in the gut and then bring it to the head. I completely agree with that. It was a, what I was thinking about is like, I have two brains. One is an art, as an artistic director and as I program work and engage with artists. I have, have to look at, a, uh, I have to take a step back and kind of look at the overall picture. And then as a playwright myself and how I write and the things that I want to talk about and things, how I want to engage with people. They are similar on some levels, but very different on other levels. And so I uh, talk personally as a playwright. Um, two plays that I have published right now. Main goal for me was to connect with people emotionally. I really felt like my first play was about someone, a woman who goes missing, and her sister's trying to find her. And it was in direct relation to murdered and missing Indigenous women. My, my own feelings around that and my discovery of it and and, and my education around that. And part of it was that halfway through the writing, um, my very smart dramaturg, Don Michelle St. Bernard, said to me, I said to her, like, I'm not writing enough about the actual facts of things that have happened and the things that have happened to people. And she was like, if they are emotionally connected to this piece, they will go after, it's not your responsibility. You make them feel it and they will, if they want to follow through with that, they will go find those 
elder Googles and other places where they will find more answers or questions or how to connect and how to, to, to continue on with that. And so she goes, for, for you, it's about telling the story in a way that emotionally connects people to the material. And so for me, the whole driving point of that play is to make people feel what it is to lose someone and not know where they are and to never have that answer again of where they ended up. And it's a deeply troubling and emotional play. And I've had people come up to me and speak to me about like, I lost my sister in a car crash. And it wasn't, they didn't, they have the answer about what happened, but they were like, the, my emotions to this piece are, are around loss and about losing that person and the question of why. And someone, some came up to me about suicide. And then this, the, an opening, one of the opening nights in Saskatoon, this, this biker came up to me, this big burly dude, like scary. I, so the show ends and no one moves. And we wait a couple minutes and I get up and I go into the lobby and this guy comes up to us, says, can I hold your hand? And I was like, sure. So we, we hold his hand and we just, he just sits there. He's like, I lost my sister. She disappeared. He's like, I've never, I've never been able to laugh about anything or laugh about it or feel emotion about it. And this play, you made me laugh, and you made me cry, and you made me feel things. He's like, I feel like this is the first step of me feeling things again. And we were just like, oh, wow. <laughs> and that was one of the things as, when becoming a playwright is understanding how people are affected by your work. They give that back to you. And then you have a responsibility to hold that space for them and to, to, to hear them and to accept and understand that everyone's gonna take it differently. And so my second play is about suicide. But I didn't want to place it directly. It's a very, I'm from small town, Northern Ontario, and it's a very small town, Northern Ontario group of people. Four, it's a mother and a father and an aunt and an uncle, and they are, they are not urban people. They are, talk about hunting moose, and they talk, like it's a very, it's set in a very rural, very, those are my aunts and uncles and my aunties and my cousins and all those people. Um, but it's not about what their background is or who they are, it could be any community. And I think that's the strength of the piece, is that it's about connecting everybody. Like, if I'm across the table from you and I'm a conservative and you're a liberal and both of us lost sons to suicide, it doesn't matter what our politics are, what our emotions are in a moment when we share that experience, then we see each other as humans. And so to, to me, that, that was, that's part of the, the work I wanna do as a playwright. I wanna bring people together with shared experiences to see what their humanity is. And if it's done here in Canada and then it's done in New Zealand or it's done in Bogota or it's done somewhere else, to me is like the power of the peace lies in the humanity that it, you are sharing with other people. So that as a playwright is a, huge for me. You know, some theaters just look at the cream of the crop. Is it a really great piece of theater? Is it really dazzling? Is it this, is that, is gonna make us money? And that's the way they look at it. We don't look at it that way. We're like, what would the community say? How does the community feel? How does this affect the artist? How does it f affect the, the story that we're, we're telling on stages? And, and on some level, sometimes it is about education. Sometimes it's about a narrative, like we just had a show in our space that is telling a history that is not taught in history books. 
So it's a, it's a reframing, as Phelan said, a reframing of history that has not been told. An indigenous person read something and was deeply affected because they didn't know these people existed. And then wrote a whole play about an opera singer who was indigenous who sang at the Met and, and had this career traveling across the United States uh, as an opera singer, but no one knew, that people don't understand. And then where does that music actually come from? And the origins of that music and the indigenous origins. So she starts uncovering all these things and writes a play about it, and it slash musical, slash opera. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's such so many different layers. I was like, obviously it has to be on our stage. Obviously this story has to be told. First of all, because this senior artist is highly regarded and deep, has deeply affected my career and has inspired me on many levels, both as an actor and artist as a playwright. But her voice is so like important and the research she has done is, is it's, it changes the game. And so then all of a sudden I have schools, we have, we have different schools in that are seeing these matinees. And I'm like, the Ontario government is pulling the indigenous uh, you know, education program. This is an education. And it was one of the days I actually had to go in. It was the protest day where all the students were gonna step outside. And I actually said to them, I get emotional about it, but um, I said, this is a protest. You being in this theater right now, is a protest and we stand with you for this because this story isn't being told anywhere else. Um, and so for me, it was just like, when, when, when governments are afraid of the people, the first thing they do is they close the theater. And you need to know that that's what's happening here, is that we are telling this story in spite of what the government wants to, wants to do. And so thank you for being here and thank you for listening to this. And then they came back with like, the best questions I've ever heard, like very deep and thoughtful questions that they had thought about during the show and came across. And the actors, every answer the actor gave went, wow, that's a great <laughs> question. That's a really, that's a really great question. You know, it was like they, they had really thought about it coming in. And so that to me, like, so then as an artistic director, you step back and go, that's the, that's the change we want to make. All of this, I've always wanted to push the boundaries of what people thought or think about Indigenous people and change that. And so everything I've done over that period has always been about changing um, perspectives and, and shifting history and shifting space. And, but also creating, um, you know, like acting as, as that catalyst to growth and, but also that mediator, protecting my community and fighting the fight with everybody else. I was just driving the bus and there was this whole group of ancestors and it was one of the very first times I ever felt like somebody else was driving that bus. Mm -hmm. And it was all these aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas going, turn here, what are you doing? Don't do that, don't turn there, why are you stopping? You know, and, and constantly in the back of my head, right? And just keep going. And that's what it felt like. And I have learned to fight and fight and fight and fight. And right up to Luminato with tributaries 
and um, which was the very first time they ever did a big, huge opening. And God, I made it so complicated so that no, no white person could understand my artistic curatorial <laughs> program. Um, it was all, like, and it was all connected. It was connected to women, strawberry moon, strawberry heart, tributaries, water, how we're all connected as indigenous people. Then I broke up the, in, it into four different program <laughs> sections. It was awesome. <laughs> and then, oh, well, the government, uh, because it was 150 money, I said, well, as long as there's no 150 anywhere around it, um, I'm fine with that. Otherwise, I am not compromising any artist. And I, am, I, I just can't do that. I won't be able to do this. So that was the first thing. And they said, oh yeah, no, 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 there won't be any 150. Then it, we, Ontario government really wanted to be a part of that and wanted to speak. And, I, and, and so I thought, fuck, how am I gonna do, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> how am I gonna do this? And I literally got on the phone and I said, look, you know, uh, like there's no space. I pack the program so heavy, there's no opening speakers, there's no talk, there's just a host, and there's barely space for her. And so I, I'm really sorry. So then that happened. Then they wanted to put advertisement, and I said, no advertisement. No advertisement around my stage, around my audi audience, around my artist. And I couldn't believe it. They went for it. And then, but I had a little bit of resistance. And I said, you can put it on the outside of the square. And then, um, you know, they wanted photo ops. And I was like, sure. What about Bear Thomas? Like, I was picking the biggest boys ever. Oh, well, you know, I don't think, I, no, yeah. And it didn't happen. But on the night of that show, everybody was blown away. And sadly, there weren't, it wasn't a huge audience, but it was an incredible group of artists. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is, it is about protecting, providing that space. All of the things that you were talking about, giving voice and making and maintaining voice and fighting for our voices and, and wedging in there. And that's what I keep doing in all my work. I really think I'm interested in work that is focused on land and land-based research and how that affects and language. And I don't know my language. I don't think any of us really know our language here. And, and it's heartbreaking because our language has so much to do with our stories and we're missing so much. I can feel, when I say that, I can feel like my whole inside and all that spirit, all the spirits that are with me weep. And you know, it's, it's hard. It's hard because we're all, we're, we're, we're grappling for our stories. Everybody wants our stories. They want us to educate. They want to talk about acknowledgement. How do I do this? Mm -hmm. Like I had somebody say, oh, okay, so you're giving me permission. And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I didn't do that. You know, it's like, just, just figure it out. Like, you know, you, like how you guys are talking about why it's important to you. 
So it's hard. We're, we're in a really intense period as indigenous people, and I'm sure it's internationally too. We're, 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 there's a lot of more pressures in a different way than there was for my mom's generation and my grandparents. Maybe, maybe we, anybody want to re reflect on some of that with, with, with how Janice kind of wrapped that up about where, how you think about what you're doing now that might be different. Mm -hmm. Specifically about the land acknowledgement stuff and how it is, it's harder, it's harder in a different way now because people are curious and curiosity is a great thing, but it's also a lot of work. Because, uh, you know, people ask me to do land acknowledgements all the time and usually I just ignore it because I want them to figure it out because it's not my job to let you acknowledge where you are. I'm like, you figure it out. Um, like, you're there, this is your thing. You should be the one to do it or you should be the one to figure that out. You, like, mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's skipping the work or it's skipping the acknowledgement part of the process. And so, it should cost you something to ask for something like that. And so, yeah. and not financially, no. but emotionally. And so, but everybody's looking for the Mad Libs version of the land acknowledgement, right? Like, what do I say? Insert what, 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 where? What website do I look at? Like, which is just an oversimplification for that whole process. So yeah, I find that, you know, 150 was interesting because it opened up everyone's people, liberal-leaning people or people who were open-minded became open-minded in a different way. And while that is all great, it's good. But as long as you're not asking us to do all the work all the time, like, I'd rather engage in a conversation than have someone offer me 200 bucks for the answer. Like, it is a living thing, and it will continue to change as we become more informed about who we are on this land and what this land is. And so I just think the work doesn't end, right? We just keep going, and we keep trying, and I think that that's the, it's a commitment to not knowing and trying. I, I, th I think some of the, the laziness or something comes from uh, being taught uh, that amnesia is important to the colonial project. Mm -hmm. uh, to know, not knowing where you are, to not knowing what land this is, to not speaking the language here, to reinforcing the idea, the primacy, the power, uh, dynamic of using English. I feel terrible we're speaking English right now. Uh, you know, that goes against every decency that you would have if you go to another land yeah. and you say, I don't know what's here. How do I, how do I act respectfully? Well, the first thing is you learn the language. You try. You work at it, you figure that out. But the idea to, to, and it's reinforced in so many places and in so many ways. And that's why there's a billion stories that, that can go in different directions about how, you know, this land, you know, the names of everything, the money, the, the architecture, the everything uh, is designed to remind settlers of their primacy, of their intended but failed primacy. It's a failure. And the failure is 
manifests itself in the kind of wide-eyed, unknowing, uh, naive settler who goes, what do I do, you know? How do I, how do I say this? I'm so scared of, of doing the wrong thing. Doing the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, just lean into that fear. Yeah. Lean into it and know that if you, if you are, stand still in that fear and acknowledge what you have not been taught, and say, I, I'm lost, you know, I, I, I and, and then do something. Go and research something. Go and try and find, and, and yeah, and make mistakes. And, and just be, be prepared to say, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I didn't know. I wasn't taught that. I wasn't, uh, and, and I didn't mean any disrespect. Um, that coming from that honest, Honesty of it is um, there's a chance. I mean, for me, I take the lead of uh, so we've several uh, elders come within in our spaces and and we um, engage with them quite a bit. And for me, I always look at the generosity in which they approach people with land acknowledgments, with education, with people not knowing. And they're the like they're in their seventies, and they're the gentlest people to someone who's like, I don't know. It's like that's okay. You don't know. Cool. Here, let me teach you. And there's just no like, huh? You don't know. You're a settler. Blah blah. Like they don't have any of that. That a lot of my generation does. We get, you know, you work a nine to five, and you're doing, and we get into this mode, and you would just assume that people should know, or that they're at they're at an education point, or. You know, and the work we do as artists is, is sometimes we're speaking to the choir. The people that, you know, how many construction workers that we pass by every day do a land acknowledgement? And if we said, hey, do you, you ever heard of a land I guarantee you, 99% of them will go like, what are you talking about? What is that? I go to a hockey game and I stand up for O Canada, but that's, so is that, is that acknowledging that we're in Canada? Like, that would be the thing. Police officers, firefighters, doctors, like, like outside of the realm which we, either government or the arts right now are, are leading the way. Like, I was in Australia, comes out like this. They've been doing it for 10 years, land acknowledgement, and every, people just, it's, it's just a part of everything. So we are leading that charge of making it an everyday thing. But when it really, to me, when it really gets there will be when those people that work at Wendy's or is your doc local doctor and you come sit for your appointment, you look up and there's a land acknowledgement at your doctor's office, you're like, okay, things are changing. Because I had a friend who did all this research about land acknowledgement, because I had asked her, I said, do you, she runs a theater, and I said, do you do land acknowledgements? And she's like, no, no. I said, well, you, like, there's a reserve, like, a kilometer from the front door of your theater, so you should, you know, <laughs> you should first invite them to the show. Like, you should, like, start a conversation. Like, I think it would be very, I think it would be a really great and beautiful thing. Like, invite them into your space, and they may not come, or they may, it may take some time, but I think start a relationship with, with them. And, and so she said, she was very open, she was really excited about it. And uh, so I, we, we, back and forth about what the acknowledgement would be, and I gave her some help with it. And so they did the land acknowledgement. She recorded it, because she wasn't gonna be there every night. And so I was like, well, you know, it's better to do it live, but you know, do what you can, and she did it. She got a phone call from a woman that had seen the show and was like, I don't want white people knowing our name, so don't say our real name. Can you please just say that this is the reserve number? Mm -hmm. And it was, a, it was a teaching for us of like, oh, 
some people are like, I don't want them to know that, you know, I don't want them to know who I am. We don't have a relationship, which I, I was like, oh, there's a deeper, there's a deeper conversation and there is work to be done on a much deeper level before we get to this idea of, of acknowledgement is great and I think it's a, it is a step and it's this thing, but in no way, it's an icing. Like the actual like making of the cake right now to me is a much deeper conversation of like respect and understanding and, and that terrible, terrible word I don't want to say. <laughs> Reconciliation, yeah. <laughs> but it is, it's one of those things of like, what is that? And is, yeah. you know, what is, what is that? To me, it's just like, they don't feel safe with you saying those words. Mm-hmm. And that was just like profound of like where they're at and the reflection of what their relationship is with each other. One of the things that I always say when they're like, oh, I feel so, uh, uh. it's so, I don't understand. I always go, now you know what we feel like and how many years we've been put in situations of being the only Indigenous juror, being the (laughs) only Indigenous board member, being the always being tagged, the Indigenous blah, blah, blah. The moment we wake up, it's a protest. It's a protest. I see those emails and I get like, oh, that's so-and-so, my heart sinks. And I think, oh, this is gonna take work, right? And, and, and it's, it's a constant. But I also, only because I brought it, my nose kind of nerdy, but um, it kind of goes back to the NAFTA. NAFTA or na- whatever you want to NAFTA. NAFTA. <laughs> and this is imaginative. I used to be on their board. I was on their board for 10 years in their programming committee for a number of years. And they created this world declaration of indigenous cinema and but it wasn't imaginative it's actually written by asa sima she's a sami woman with support from darlene johnson who's dungati and that sounds like it's australian um, and then it was accepted and recognized by, at an indigenous film conference so that's really important to acknowledge that but it, it, it's something that I think um, could be integrated into what you were talking about and your original intent. And so I'm just gonna quickly read it. We the indigenous screen storytellers, so if we say, we the in, indigenous storyteller, storytellers united in this northern corner of our mother, the earth, in a great assembly of wisdom declare to all nations we glory in our past when our earth was nurturing our oral traditions, when night sky evoked the vision of our dreams, when sun and the moon were our parents in stories told, when storytelling made us all brothers and sisters, when our stories brought forth great chiefs and leaders, when justice was upheld in the stories told, we will hold and manage indigenous cultural and intellectual property, ensure our continued recognition as primary guardians and interpreters of our culture, respect indigenous individuals and community, faithfully preserve our traditional knowledge with sound and image, 
use our skills to communicate with nature and all living things. Heal our wounds through storytelling, and in this particular case, screen storytelling. Preserve and pass on our stories to those not yet born. We will manage our own destiny and maintain our humanity and pride as Indigenous peoples through screen storytelling. Now, isn't that the most beautiful declaration? And I, you know, rather than a um, no disrespect to the document um, manifesto from Quebec, but this is just one page, <laughs> and um, I think it is universal for Indigenous cultures and art and practices, or creative practices and creators, because I, I, I sort of try to stay away from the word art now, and um, I, I think it would be really cool. If we try to maybe connect to this woman and create something that is that same declaration, and that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think it'll unite us as as we move forward. Uh, Denise, Keith, Alex, Phelan, uh, I'm going to thank you for that because I don't think there's any more words to be said after something like that, other than uh, um, to be continued, <laughs> I hope. And uh, yeah, much appreciated. Thank you for this. What will you like to add to a North American storytelling agreement? Let us know. Comment on this podcast episode or message us on social media. If you're curious about anything you've heard here, you can find more information in the show notes for the episode on our website. We are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful Zaga Igan, known to some as Lake Ontario, in Toronto, or Dugarondo. This is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee, or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13 also known as the Toronto Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Aluna Theatre, with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and the Metcalf Foundation. Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness with Sue Ballant. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheatre.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa.